This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. It is good to be back. And by back, I mean, look, I realize I'm on the station three to four times a week with Knicks and occasionally Rangers pregame, postgame, halftime intermission coverage. But back three and a half hours this afternoon talking anything and everything. And what a day to come back. Schedule for me starting to open up. Last Knicks game of the season, just a few hours away. I will have pregame coverage for you starting at 6.30 p.m. right here. Ed and Brendan play-by-play after that. Knicks and the Toronto Raptors in a game that, as it turns out, doesn't mean anything for either. But please tune in. That's a (laughs) terrific uh, endorsement for our broadcast right off the bat. Uh, Final game of the season for the Knicks. We can uh, hear of Obi Toppin continues his surge to finish off the season. We might see Emmanuel quickly in the starting lineup. He's been terrific the last 23 games of the season. So certainly a few things uh, with the Knicks to keep an eye on, and we will have that for you later on this evening. The Masters right now, and you heard the update at the top of the hour with Doug Brown. The leader's now on the course, and it's getting very tight for Scotty Scheffler. He had, I believe, his largest lead yesterday was seven shots. I think he got to 11 under. Cameron Smith and a few others were at four under at the time. Well, Cameron Smith, a birdie-making machine, as Nick Faldo has described him this afternoon, comes out and birdies the first hole. Scheffler pars the first hole, so they're on number two right now. And all of a sudden, the lead for Scotty Scheffler, who has led seemingly the entire tournament, but has actually been in the lead since Friday, the lead for Scotty Scheffler is just two. He's at nine under par. Cameron Smith, four on, uh, seven under par. Sung J M at four under par right now. He has five shots off the lead. And then, of course, you have the first full weekend of baseball. And wow. <laughs> and it's funny because I hosted and, and Jacob Perry's alongside and he produced a lot of these shows for me last summer when I often do my uh, heavy lifting for 98.7 ESPN New York. And I hosted a ton of shows last summer. And we all know how frustrating a baseball season it was last summer for both Yankee fans and Met fans. And I know the Yankees did make the playoff, but they were one and done in a frustrating loss in the wild card game. And they really drove Yankee fans nuts throughout the season. And then, of course, the off season. You know, the guys in the Michael K show and other shows on the station have been talking about it leading up to the start of the season this week. The offseason underwhelming for the Yankees, at least from the fans' perspective. Now, the Mets' offseason was anything but underwhelming, but their season last year was extremely frustrating for both teams. And now you have the Mets at 3-0, and the Yankees at 2-0, and both against division rivals. In the Yankees' case, it's against the rival in the Boston Red Sox. And now you're wondering the first weekend of the season – Who's going to be the first New York baseball team to lose? I mean, what a terrific start. Mets are leading right now 2-1 to in the top of the fifth inning in Washington, looking for the four-game sweep. Francisco Lindor has decided to join the early season party with a home run in the fourth inning, followed by an RBI single by Mark Hanna. So the Mets lead 2-1. to Carlos Carrasco on the mound, making his first start. Look, here's the thing for the Mets, and we'll get to the Yankees in a second. They play tonight on Sunday Night Baseball against the Red Sox. The Mets are starting the season, and, and, and look, we, we, we know about the offseason. Buck Showalter, in my opinion, the most important move, but Eduardo Escobar and, and Starling Marte, who's not in the starting lineup tonight. Um, the late trade for Chris Bassett, who was terrific yesterday in his first start. The offseason for the Mets could not have gone much better. I mean, they were... Everything that the Met fan has wanted them to be ever since Steve Cohen took official control of this franchise. Everything they could have wanted them to be. They were aggressive. Um, they plugged 
nearly every hole you could say they had. Now they have depth. They've had pitching this entire time. By the way, I didn't mention Max Scherzer among the offseason moves. He's probably worth a mention as well. Um, it's been everything you could have wanted so far for the Mets. But then right before the season begins, the back-to-back of DeGrom's out for at least two months. And then the Scherzer injury, which was never that worrisome to me. But on the heels of the DeGrom injury, the Met fan, and deservedly so, has the tendency to throw his or her hands up and say, ah, here we go again. And it kind of had the feeling of that in the days leading up to the start of the season. You knew you weren't going to start with DeGrom. And then Scherzer, would he start the first weekend? You were unsure of that as well. So basically, in the days leading up to the start of the season, you went from, wow, we have to decide between a two-time Cy Young Award winner and a three-time Cy Young Award winner to start opening day. And obviously, it, they were both healthy. It's not really a decision. That's DeGrom's spot, and he's been the Met. And Either way, you were going to have a three-time Cy Young Award winner as your number two pitcher. So you go from that to Tyler McGill is starting opening day in Washington on Thursday night. And what a drastic shift that felt like. But DeGrom being out of the lineup, and look, I'm not trying to overreact to three and possibly today four straight wins over a team that outside of Juan Soto and Nelson Cruz, who homered today, outside of those two players has very little to hang its hat on. I mean, if Washington doesn't finish in last place in the National League East, I think it would be a surprise. But if the Mets can get off to a good start without Jacob DeGrom, it's obviously a blessing in disguise. And here's the thing. As great as DeGrom has been the last three seasons, he, especially the last two seasons, has not been reliable in terms of health. He just hasn't. He hasn't been reliable. He hasn't been durable enough. Last year, up until the All-Star break, he was pitching as well as anyone has ever pitched, ever, in history. He was pitching as well as anyone had ever pitched. Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson, um, Nolan Ryan, whoever you want to name. Greg Maddox. I mean, he was unbelievable. But he, that lasted half a season. You didn't see him after July. And that's a problem. You could be as good as you can for three months. But if you're not available for the final three months, then you're not providing anything. And the year before that, he was unreliable as well in and out of the rotation battling injuries here and there and the Mets had become and this was the Mets had so many problems before this season and we know and this is why they made wholesale changes starting with the manager and the general manager but the Mets had become too reliant on Jacob deGrom they had they knew that every five days they were going to have a guy go out there and they would know that they only needed to score one, maybe two runs, and they're probably going to come away with a win. Now, we all bemoan the fact that DeGrom's win total in his two dominant Cy Young Award seasons was not nearly what it should have been. But the fact is, even though he wasn't getting credited with a lot of those wins, the team was still winning a lot of those games. What DeGrom would do was keep the team in the game. And as frustrating as it was to not see him get the victory, in many, many of those cases, the team got the win. So when DeGrom took the mound, he was so dominant that more often than not, even if the Mets scored one or two runs in a particular game, they were winning that game more often than not. And they became too DeGrom reliant. Look at this roster. This roster, and I'm not just saying this because of the 3-0 and start, the Mets roster is more than DeGrom. The Mets roster is good. It's Alonzo and it's Lindor, it's Escobar, and it's Kana, it's Dom Smith, and 
You look at last season. Lindor was awful. McNeil was awful. Cano didn't play because he was suspended. Dom Smith regressed. Brandon Nimmo wasn't particularly good. You don't have uh, Michael Conforto anymore. That spot, you could say, goes to Mark Canna, who's off to a terrific start. McCann was not good last season. Um, up and down the, the roster, there was underperformance last year. And despite that, the Mets hung around where they were at least in the conversation for a wild card spot or a playoff spot close to the last month of the season. But everything went wrong. Now, I'm not going to say, all right, things even out. Everything's going to go right this year. But some of those things have to go right. I mean, Lindor has to be better this year than he was last year, right? Has to be. He was bad. He was bad in the clubhouse. Um, he was bad on the field. He, he was bad. It was a terrible first season for Francisco Lindor. Cano can't give you any less than he gave you last year because he didn't give anything last year. He wasn't allowed to play last season. Dom Smith, is he the 2020 guy? Is he the 2021 guy? Well, if he's closer to the 2020 guy, then you really have something there as your designated hitter, now a full-time designated hitter, and uh, able to find a, a permanent spot for him in your lineup. Same with Jeff McNeil. I mean, Jeff McNeil's a guy who we were talking batting titles. Batting titles. When he came up, it was so exciting. He was a rookie. He wasn't that young of a rookie because he's 30 years old now. But he was a rookie who was already a 320-330 hitter, an all-star, could play a couple of positions. And last year, he bottomed out. McCann wasn't the free agent signing he was supposed to be. And because others around him weren't performing, the spotlight also shined on McCann not getting the job done. And then, of course, um, you had the DeGrom situation where when he was pitching the first three months of the season, as well as anyone has ever pitched, the Mets were not only in contention, they were in first place. The Mets spent the entire first half of last season in first place. And then DeGrom went down, and the season was over. And that was it. And the Mets were too reliant on Jacob DeGrom. They have no choice now. They have no choice but to learn how to win without this guy. He's not going to be here. If he's here before the end of June, that's a blessing. And I would be shocked if he's on the mound for the Mets before the end of June. I'd be shocked. All right, so we're talking two likely three full months without this guy. So he, for all intents and purposes, he's not on the team right now. He is not a part of the equation. So you got to go out and you got to pitch. You got to pitch like McGill pitched on opening night. You got to pitch like Bassett pitched yesterday. You got to pitch like Carrasco's pitching this afternoon. You know Scherzer's going to be fine as long as Scherzer stays healthy. I mean, th there are very few athletes um, that I like and respect more than Max Scherzer. I've just always, always just loved his approach, his tenacity, his mindset. I mean, he's just a tough dude, right? If, if he can give you anything, he's going to give it to you. And you don't often get that with a guy with his talent level. And granted, because of his age, his talent level isn't what it used to be. It's still pretty significant. And his mentality is what continues to make him somebody who can be an elite pitcher at his age. So you got all that. The bullpen, and look, I, I know there's still shrapnel from 2019 when Diaz came over and single-handedly torpedoed the Mets season that year. He was the biggest reason why they didn't go to the postseason in 2019. You know, ever since then, he's been okay. He's been better than okay, to be honest with you. Um, but I know there's still some PTSD for Mets fans there. 
He's been better than okay. By and large, the bullpen's been pretty good. So now you're talking about a team with depth in the rotation, with depth in the bullpen, and with depth in the lineup. And let's spin this forward a couple of months towards the trade deadline. If the Mets are in contention, you know, you know they're going to be aggressive to bring in somebody who can plug a hole of need. And by then, maybe you get to Grom back. You have that one-two punch atop the rotation. Your team has learned to win without DeGrom. He comes back to a first-place team or a second-place team that's battling with Atlanta atop the division, maybe one or two games out, and then DeGrom's a luxury from that point. My God, the possibilities for this Mets team. And, and by the way, I go back to what I said a few minutes ago. To me, the most important addition in the offseason was the manager. You've got an adult there. There's an adult in the clubhouse. You're being managed by a guy who under no circumstances will know less about his team than the other manager will about his. Under no circumstances will the Mets manager know less about baseball or situations or anything than the opposing manager is. Under no situation or circumstances will that happen. I'm not saying he's the best manager. He will be the best prepared manager. He is the sharpest manager. And I look at Buck Showalter and, and the criticism on him in recent years when he wasn't able to find a job despite success in the Bronx and success in Arizona and a lot of success in Baltimore because look at that franchise now. And he wasn't able to find a job since he left the Orioles was because he could not adjust to today's player not only the not, not not so much the player, but just the way baseball is run now with the analytics and the front offices being so involved. And, and I always laugh at hearing things like that about highly successful people like Buck Showalter. And we heard the same thing about Tom Thibodeau before he came to the Knicks last season, that Tibbs was too hard driving and too old school and can't relate to today's NBA player. He needs to be more of a player friendly coach. I mean, look, Buck Showalter and Tom Thibodeau are among the best at what they do. You don't think that they can adjust? You don't think they, they recognize that the way that, in Buck Showalter's case, he did it in 1993 when he had Don Mattingly playing for him You don't and Wade Boggs? You, you don't think that he recognizes that maybe he needs to do things a little differently in 2022? I mean, he's successful for a reason. And the same thing with Tom Thibodeau. And the Knicks loved Tibbs last year. And I understand, and we'll get to the Knicks later, and I understand that the Knicks' record and result this year has been disappointing. There's no question about it. And Tom Thibodeau has not been perfect this year. But look at the way the team has played since the All-Star break. The Knicks are a 500 team since the All-Star break. So you're telling me that those guys don't want to play for this head coach? These guys know how to get it done. Guys like Showalter, guys like Thibodeau, they know how to get it done. And if you were watching that Mets game last night, um, after the early hit by pitch, following the fireworks of the night before when they showed Buck Walter's face in the Mets dugout, just, you know, exasperated. If you don't think that these players are on board with Buck just from this opening weekend, put aside the wins and losses, the way he reacted and had Lindor's back on, fr on uh, Friday night and then his reaction to, and let's be honest, it was a very benign hit by pitch yesterday on the rear end, but just the fact that Buck's like, this is getting ridiculous. Enough with hitting my guys, right? He recognizes a situation and reacts appropriately. I love the reaction. So all good for the Mets. We got plenty to talk about for the Yankees. They're coming up later on. If you're really locked in on the Mets, you're actually probably watching the game right now. But I had to share some thoughts about them because it couldn't have been a better start for them so far as they look to improve to 4-0 this afternoon in Washington. 
back. I always laugh. I, I know, look, in our business, ratings are important, and you want to say something inflammatory that's going to, you know, get into a promo or, you know, be tweeted out or retweeted or shared. I, I always laugh when, you know, ex-athletes from one sport make fun of current athletes from a different sport as if the ex-athlete sport was tougher and more demanding. And it's, it's not a good look when the ex-athlete who's making fun of the current athlete in terms of success in his own individual sport was not as good um, as the athlete being made fun of. It's, you know, I understand it's part of the game, but it's, uh, you know, it always makes me laugh when I hear uh, things like that. It has a very, very get off my lawn kind of feel to it. Um, 1-800-919-3776. Yankees, Red Sox tonight. Jordan Montgomery and Tanner Houck. Uh, much like the Mets, uh, a lot to love about the start to the season for the Yankees. Not just the two wins, but look, these are two games for the Yankees, especially against this opponent. These are two games for the Yankees that they would have lost last year, the year before. The Yankees have fallen into such a lull in recent years. And this is kind of part of the malaise that Yankee fans are so frustrated with. The Yankees have fallen into such a lull in recent years against the Red Sox that they fall behind early in games. They don't have enough discipline or patience or the right approach to come back in these games. And they end up losing these games. And a lot of times they'll come close. You know, they'll fall behind by four. They'll hit a three-run homer to make it four to three. And then their bullpen will give back a couple of runs late in the game. And again, you, you don't want to overreact to two games, but two games is all we have to react to, over or underreacting. Okay, that's all we got are two games. And I just think both of these wins against the Red Sox were great signs for the Yankees. I really do. In terms of, it does have a different feel. You know, they've got some different guys. And you're still feeling out a lot of these guys. And you know, seeing what Josh Donaldson is all about and Isaiah kind of Falefa is all about. Um, even Anthony Rizzo, he came over at the trade deadline. He was really good early. And then right away, he got COVID. He was out for a couple of weeks. And after that, he was never the same. So you haven't even gotten the full scope of Anthony Rizzo, a guy who was a big star as recently as 2016. You know, Joey Gallo, the Joey Gallo thing's going to get interesting. And, and that's the... To me, the biggest concern or one of the biggest concerns with this Yankees team right now is the Joey Gallo thing. I mean, you know, especially I, I saw two plays in the first two innings yesterday where he misplayed balls in the outfield. He dove for one, didn't catch it, and then there was a ball hit off the wall that he didn't cut off. Now, it didn't cost him an extra base, but all you hear about Joey Gallo, the devil's advocate, the people who are trying to counteract the Yankee fans that are so frustrated with the fact that this guy hits under 200 and does nothing but strike out except the occasional times that he homers, all you hear about is how he is a gold glove caliber defensive player. Well, I got news for you. If Gallo doesn't hit any better than he did last season, I don't care if he's Andrew Jones in the outfield. The Yankee fan is going to get tired of this guy real quickly. All right, and we've seen this happen in recent years. Yankee fans getting frustrated with their own players, and usually it does not have a happy ending. Same thing with Met fans, same thing with Philadelphia fans. It usually doesn't have a happy ending. Now, one of the guys, and this is the rare occasion in which this has happened, one of the guys who in recent years has completely flipped the script, he was the ire of Yankee fans derision in his first couple of years in the Bronx was John Carlos Stanton. You know, they make the trade after the 2017 season. 
and a lot of people don't remember this, but go look up his numbers from 2018. He was awesome that year. That was the year where Judge broke his hand after he was having a great year. Judge broke his hand in the summer, June, I think July. He was out for like a full month. Stanton carried the team from that point on until Judge came back. But then we get to the playoffs, and the Yankees lose the division series to the Red Sox. And Stanton was awful, awful in that division series. The next year, 2019, Stanton missed all but, what, nine games? I think he played nine games that entire regular season. Came back for the playoffs, was awesome in the first, I think, game, right? I think he only played the first game against the Astros. And then he was gone for the rest of the postseason, rest of that series. He injured himself again. So now we get to 2020. And, of course, 2020 was completely different because there's no fans in there. But, you know, doing what we do and listening to the station all the time, the Yankee fan absolutely hated Stan because now two years, they looked at him as the guy who prevented the Yankees from going after one of these other high-priced free agents like a Bryce Harper or a Mike Trout or somebody like that because they were paying Stanton's salary. So it got worse and worse and worse. You know, 2020, he misses half the season there. But because it was a 60-game season, there weren't fans in the seats, it was a little bit under the radar. He was awesome in the playoffs against the uh, Indians in their two-game series sweep and then against the Rays when they lost in five games in the division series. He was awesome there. And then last season... It was pretty good. He played almost the entire season. He played some outfield. He was okay in the playoff game. He got a big hit. Uh, almost got a, a big home run over the Green Monster. Went off the wall. Performed well. But by the end of last year, Stanton was a guy who Yankee fans had gotten on board with. Now, the Stanton situation, I've seen it a million times. It can go south. Guy comes in, high-priced, a lot of expectations, not the friendliest guy in the world. Stanton's a pretty serious dude. I think he's well-liked within the clubhouse, but in terms of outward persona, outward perspective, he's not the friendliest guy in the world, all right? And he, the first two years, was kind of the symbol of the Yankees' shortcomings. And he fought through that. And he's kind of come through that on the other side now. And two home runs now for him to start the season. Big home runs, too. Played the outfield yesterday, so you love to see that. And he wants to play the outfield. I mean, he, I think he recognizes that his season really turned around last year when he played the outfield. And remember, he won an MVP in 2017 with the Marlins, and he had to play the outfield because there was no designated hitter in the National League back then. So this is something that he's comfortable doing. I think it was just assumed when he came to the Bronx because of the you know, plethora of outfielders the Yankees had, Plus the fact that, you know, he's a big muscular guy who in his career has been susceptible to injury. It's probably best to just stash him at designated hitter. And I don't think that was a very good idea because in terms of salary, other than Garrett Cole, this is your most valuable commodity on the team. All right. So, you know, with all due respect to guys like Aaron Hicks and Brett Gardner and other guys who have played the outfield for the Yankees since Stanton came over, wouldn't you think the first guy you should take care of and make sure he's in the most advantageous spot is John Carlos Stanton? Because his ceiling is the highest. And the Yankees did not do that at all until last season. And once they did and they put him in the outfield and they saw that he could handle it, and I'm not saying he needs to be out there six days a week, two, three days a week, maybe four days a week. I think that's what he wants. I think that's more than reasonable. And it's a good way to kind of keep the lineup fresh. You know, yesterday Aaron Hicks didn't start. Judge played center field. Stanton was in left field. They got uh, Donaldson in the lineup as the designated hitter. You know, this rotation of there's always going to be one infield guy sitting out. It doesn't always have to be one infielder. 
You know, yesterday they all played. You had Donaldson at the DH. You had LeMahieu at third. You had Kiner Falefa at short. Torres started at second. And you had Rizzo at first. Now today, DJ LeMahieu gets the day off. So Donaldson's still in there. He's back at third. IKF is at short. Torres starts for the second straight day at second. And you have Rizzo still at first base. It's going to be really interesting. But you can't, you can't have a guy like DJ LeMahieu or Rizzo or... Um, Glaber Torres not playing one out of every four days. Those guys are everyday major league players. So you need to get other positions involved. You need to get Joey Gallo involved in that rotation. You need to get Stanton involved in that rotation. You need to get Aaron Hicks involved in that rotation. And if you do that, now all of a sudden, LeMayhew needs to sit once every seven days instead of once every four days. And Torres needs to sit once every seven days instead of once every four days. And the fact that Stanton can play the outfield and open up that DH spot for somebody like Donaldson to slide into yesterday so you can play all five infielders, that's incredibly valuable for this team. But the reason I started on the Stanton point is because of Joey Gallo. I don't see... Joey Gallo being able to handle a potential situation where the fans are all over him and booing him every single time he strikes out. I don't see him handling that like Stanton. I've never seen anybody handle it like Stanton. I mean, Stanton handled it wonderfully, and I think that he deserves a lot of credit for the way he did. He completely rewrote the script on what his New York Yankee tenure is now in his fourth season. Fifth season, my goodness, why? Time flies. His fifth season, the last two have been so weird. Um, but that's because of, you know, I mean, he's an incredibly confident guy. Incredibly. And I know all of these guys are confident to a certain degree. You don't make it to this level of Major League Baseball without being as confident as, as these guys are. But there's there's different degrees. And, you know, look, Stanton, he's the biggest guy in the room. He's the strongest guy in the room. He hits the ball the furthest. He had the most home runs one year. He won the MVP. He's a confident dude, and he never let the reaction to his performance or underperformance affect the way that he approached the game. So Gallo is the one thing right now that I'd have a concern about. Gallo and the starting pitching. But we knew about the starting pitching. And I'm not going to get all hung up in Cole went four innings, Severino went three innings. First of all, it's awesome to see Severino make his first start since 2019. And, and even then, it was late in the season. It was awesome to see that. I think three innings is what you can expect from him. He gave up the early home run. He battled back and didn't give anything else up. Garrett Cole opening day. I'm not that upset that he only pitched four innings. They had three and a half weeks of spring training. This is why the rosters, at least for the first few weeks, have been expanded to 28 guys. As the Mets get out of the sixth inning, they're heading to the seventh in D.C. The Mets a two-to-one lead. Uh, Carrasco did a terrific job. Uh, Chase and Shreve came on to replace him and get Juan Soto to end the sixth inning. But the rosters were expanded and three extra pitchers were added to get the Yankees through these first three weeks. So in terms of innings and how much you're getting out of your starters the first three weeks, I'm not worried about it. I'm more worried about the quality of the starts. And I know the numbers and the ERAs might not say that Garrett Cole and Luis Severino were lights out in their first two starts, and they weren't lights out, but they were good enough. I mean, look, pitchers, pitchers are going to have rough innings. Cole, coming off of that wild card game debacle last year, and his first experience this season is giving up three runs and two home runs in the top of the first inning, and for him to shut it down from there, that was huge. That was a huge effort for him. 
And then Severino, the same thing. Severino's kind of like Tiger Woods' round this weekend. I mean, Tiger Woods just finished. He got another 78. He goes 78-78 on the weekend. Talk about playing with house money. Tiger Woods, the fact that he just got through four rounds of the Masters, made the cut on Friday, it's really one of the most incredible things I've seen in a while. Now, I'm not putting Severino's pitching three innings yesterday in that category, but what I am saying is Severino yesterday was kind of pitching with house money. The, the win for Severino yesterday was getting out there on the mound, starting a game for the first time since 2019. And, and you saw a little bit of the Seve when he got the big strikeout to get out of the inning. You saw the double fist pump uh, and the scream to himself that you've seen from him in many big moments. And it's definitely something that he can build on. So that in itself was a win. And then the fact that the team gets a win on top of it, it was a great day and a great start for the Yankees. Masters update. Same, Scheffler minus 10, Smith minus 6, Rory McIlroy and Sung J.M. are both minus 4. Six shots off the lead. The leaders are on the 7th hole right now. NBA, so what they did today, it's the final day of the regular season. Uh, the Knicks play tonight. Uh, right here, our coverage begins at 6.30 on 98.7 ESPN New York. Knicks Raptors, I'll have the pregame. Ed Cohen, Brendan Brown have the game for you. It, uh in terms of seeding, is not an important game for either team. Toronto is locked in in the Eastern Conference to the fifth seed, and the Knicks, as we know, uh, their season ends today as they did not qualify for the play-in tournament. Now, the 10 teams in the East that will be at least play-in teams have all been determined. Actually, the 10 teams in the West as well. What's up for grabs today in the NBA is plenty of seeding. All 20 teams, as I said, have been decided. Only nine of the 20 seeds have been clinched. So here's what's been clinched. Miami's the number one in the East. The Raptors, as I just said, are number five in the East. And the Bulls are number six in the East. In the West, the Suns are number one. The Grizzlies are number two. And the play-in tournament is set. Minnesota's seven. The Clippers are eight. The Pelicans are nine. And the Spurs are ten. So what you got out West on Tuesday night, you'll have the Timberwolves against the Clippers. The winner of that, is the seventh seed out West and would play the Grizzlies in the first round. On Wednesday, the Pelicans play the Spurs. The loser of that is out. The winner of the Pelicans-Spurs game would play the loser of the Timberwolves-Clippers game. That game would be on Friday, and the winner of that game would be the eighth seed in the Western Conference. And the East goes a similar way, but... The seeding's all up in the air right now. The Nets, the Cavs, the Hawks, and the Hornets are the four teams that will be in the East play-in tournament. And what the NBA did on this final day of the season, they put all four of their games first. So they all started at 3.30. They're all going on right now. Brooklyn started the day in 7th. Cleveland started the day in 8th. Atlanta 9th. And Charlotte 10th. They're all winning right now. And except for Charlotte, they're all winning by a pretty healthy margin. So if... Those results hold, you will have Brooklyn, number seven, playing Cleveland, number eight, on Tuesday night at Barclays Center. And then Atlanta, number nine, would host Charlotte, number 10, on Wednesday night in Atlanta. So the winner of the Brooklyn-Cleveland game on Tuesday would be the number seven seed in the East. The loser of Brooklyn-Cleveland would play the winner of Atlanta Charlotte and the team that wins that game would be the eighth seed and play the Miami Heat. So right now the Nets are on top of the Pacers 47 to 33. Cleveland leads Milwaukee 60 to 38. Atlanta leads Houston 48 to 31. 
and Charlotte is on top of Washington 46-40. to That's the only somewhat close game. Although anybody who listened to our Knicks broadcast on Friday night knows that Washington is not really a stalwart down the stretch of this season. They're playing without Bradley Beal. They're playing without Chris Stapps, Porzingis. They're playing without Contavious Caldwell-Pope, and they're playing without Kyle Kuzma. Charlotte, by the way, was announced today that Gordon Hayward, who is a really good player but just can't stay healthy to save his life, is out indefinitely. So once again, his health is going to be compromised for the Hornets in the play-in tournament, which is a shame because I really like that Hornets team uh, when they're fully healthy. It's a team that's given the Knicks a lot of trouble this season. So the Brooklyn story is this. Right now, it looks like they're going to be a win away on Tuesday night at Barclays Center from locking up the number seven seat. So what does that mean? Well, I said last uh, segment that that probably means a first-round matchup with the Milwaukee Bucks. Not necessarily, okay? Milwaukee today is sitting Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's not playing, all right? You have Chris Middleton also not playing. Drew Holiday played one minute, and came out of the game. All right, so Milwaukee is throwing this game away. They're losing by 22 points in the second quarter to Cleveland. Milwaukee, if they lose that game, which they seem to be on their way to doing, um, could fall to the number three seed. If the Celtics win later today and the 76ers lose later today, <laughs> then it could be Brooklyn-Boston in the first round of the playoffs. So it's interesting. The question I ask and would love to know, are these teams trying to, on the final day of the season, avoid playing the Nets? I mean, the Nets have had such a weird year, you know, between the Kyrie Irving stuff and then the James Harden stuff and then Kevin Durant once again missing a significant amount of time. But in the last week, the Nets have started to string together some consistency. It doesn't look like Ben Simmons is going to be part of the equation this season. Seth Curry's playing through an injury. And in fact, Seth Curry is not playing today. But you have Kevin Durant as healthy as he's been. And you have Kyrie Irving healthy and available. So this could be a Brooklyn Nets team that some of the top teams in the Eastern Conference don't want to face. So it's interesting if that is the motivation for Milwaukee because all season long, my thought was that Milwaukee doesn't care who they play. You know, I don't think Giannis cares who he plays. Giannis is one of my favorite NBA superstars just because I love his whole approach. I mean, put, put aside how great of a player he is and how many things he can do on the court. He doesn't really like the guys who he plays against. You know, he's not out there hugging guys before the game and wanting to be best friends with them before the game. That's not who he is. And I don't think Giannis gets caught up at all in all of these little things that make, in some way, the NBA unappealing. Like the thing I just mentioned. A lot of people don't like the fraternization between teams. They miss the days of the Knicks and the Heat, the Knicks and the Pacers, the Knicks and the Bulls, where they weren't hugging each other and hand-slapping and high-five before the game. A lot of people who love the NBA miss that type of NBA. Another thing that a lot of people do not like about the NBA is teams trying to avoid other teams. Is that what Milwaukee's doing today? It's hard to argue that it's not because if Milwaukee loses and Boston wins and then Philadelphia loses, then Boston gets to play Brooklyn. Now, Boston can turn around and they could tank their game against Memphis tonight, which starts at 7 o'clock. So it's interesting that Milwaukee 
got to show or had to show its cards first. And clearly, they don't mind throwing this game away. Now, if Boston goes out tonight and loses to Memphis, then it's a moot point. And we have Milwaukee-Brooklyn in the first round. But either way, and this is, by the way, assuming that Brooklyn's going to win the play-in game on Tuesday night. But the way they're going right now, and as depleted as the Cavaliers are, I'd be very surprised if Brooklyn did not win that game. Now that it's playoff time, play-in time, whatever you want to call it. I mean, look, this is year three of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. At some point, this pairing has to be expected to get past the second round of the playoffs, no? Right? I mean, do you remember all the hoopla in the summer of 2019? Late June, early July? The back page of the paper? Picture of Barclays Center? It said the new Mecca. The new Mecca, it said, in Barclays Center. Yeah, that's what it said. Now, the expectations for making an arena in an outer borough, all due respect, and I love Brooklyn, but it's an outer borough. All right, the, the expectations for turning an arena in an outer borough to the new Mecca, all right, compared to the world's most famous arena, probably include, um, how should I say this, winning more than one playoff series. I mean, that's fair, right? You know, year one of Irving and Kevin Durant, they won, let me check my math here, um, they won zero playoff games. They were swept uh, by Toronto. Now, I understand Durant was hurt and missed that entire season, and uh, Kyrie Irving, as he has been for the vast majority of his career, was a part-time player that first season. But they got paid. They were expected to do a job. And the job that they performed that year collectively and as a team was not winning any playoff games. Uh, that brought us to last season. You know, and we saw some beautiful basketball, especially after they made the James Harden trade. The few opportunities we got to see those three All-Stars, multiple-time All-Stars together. It was a really, really beautiful thing to watch, especially that first-round series against the Celtics. And then the Bucks come along. The Nets run them out of their building the first two games. And then all of a sudden, uh, Milwaukee's winning that series in seven games after Kyrie gets hurt, after James Harden had the hamstring issue that he tried to play through the final three games of the series, uh, and after Kevin Durant was unable to, uh, as he has been throughout his entire career, single-handedly uh, as the lead player bring his team to an NBA Finals. He's never been able to do that. As talented as he is and as many numbers as he's put up, Kevin Durant has never been a guy who's been able to single-handedly as the lone headliner bring his team to an NBA Finals. He had a chance to do that last year. He was the lone headliner in that Milwaukee series because of Harden's hamstring injury and Kyrie Irving's ankle injury. So that was year two, all right? This is year three of the KD-Kyrie Irving partnership. Year three so far... Uh, has led to Brooklyn needing a win on the final day of the regular season to host a play-in tournament game. So unless I'm missing something, nothing of that scenario I just pointed out would indicate to me that Barclays Center is the quote-unquote new mecca. So I guess we still have some work to do on that front. And my point is this. If I'm Boston, if I'm Milwaukee... I'm not scared of the Brooklyn Nets. I'm really not. Listen, I was at Madison Square Garden on Wednesday night. It was a great atmosphere. Nets Knicks. And I know the easy thumbnail, quick glance look, and I saw it on Twitter, and I saw it all over the place. The quick instant reaction to that game was, up. Oh, the Nets did it to the Knicks again. 
They give them hope. They let them get out in front, and then they just crush their hearts at the end of the game. Listen to me. Brooklyn needed that game, okay? Brooklyn needed that game. They needed Friday's game against Cleveland, and they need today's game against Indiana to get where they want to be right now, which is seventh place in the East. Brooklyn walked into Madison Square Garden with the team that they're going to go to battle with to try to win an NBA championship. And they fell behind the Knicks by 17 points at the half. They were down by 10 points after the third quarter. A Knicks team playing without its leading scorer, who also leads the team in rebounds and assists. A Knicks team playing without its starting center, who is second in the NBA in offensive rebounds per game. It was a Knicks team that was severely decimated that, according to the standings anyway, had nothing to play for. And Brooklyn needed to scratch and claw just to get past the Knicks. What are they going to do? Are they really a team that a full, fully healthy, at full throttle Milwaukee Bucks defending champs are trying to avoid? Really? This? This team? Or Boston, the team that has had the best defense in the NBA the second half of the season? Are the Celtics really trying to avoid the Nets? We'll find out later today. I mean, if we don't see Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown out there, I mean, look, if I'm Boston, I'm looking past the Nets, not in the terms of, like, we don't have to worry about them. Of course you have to worry about them. Anybody has to worry about a team that has Durant and Irving. But if I'm Boston and I see a chance at that number two seed today, I'm grabbing it because I'm looking ahead to the second round. I'm saying, hey, after we beat whoever we're going to play in round number one, we're probably going to face Milwaukee in round number two. I want home court advantage for that series. So if I'm Boston, that's how I'm approaching this tonight. But we'll see. We'll see what Ime Udoka, the Celtics head coach, decides to do. So right now, again, Brooklyn, um, Cleveland, Atlanta, and Charlotte are all winning, which as things stand right now, that would put Brooklyn in seventh, Cleveland in eighth, Atlanta in ninth, and Charlotte in 10th place. All those games uh, mid to late second quarter. Brooklyn's game is going on at Barclays Center right now. Our Mets are down to their final two outs in D.C. They were hoping for a four-game sweep against the Nationals. Mets took a 2-1 to lead into the eighth inning. Trevor Williams on in relief gave up three runs, including a go-ahead two-run single to Nelson Cruz with two outs in the eighth. Uh, Prior to that, a Pete Alonso throwing error helped elongate the inning. Uh, so the Mets done in by their defense in the eighth inning. And look, the Mets haven't hit this afternoon. There have been a lot of opportunities. Uh, they have the two runs scored in the fourth inning. Uh, one of them scoring on the Francisco Lindor solo home run. And then Mark Hanna and RBI single. So the Mets trailing 4-2, to two, two outs in the Top of the ninth inning, Tanner Rainey pitching for Washington. It's a Nationals team that I think most reasonable people expect to be at the bottom of the National League East this season, even behind the Miami Marlins, who are feisty and, and pesky and probably already on their way up. Uh, one out to go after a lineout uh, by J.D. Davis. So that's the Mets situation. Um, final day of the Masters. It's been fun. It got down to a one-stroke lead for Scotty Scheffler. He and Cameron Smith, the two leaders, are on the eighth hole right now. And Scheffler is still maintaining a four-stroke advantage. He's at minus 11, and Smith is at minus 7. Again, they are on the eighth hole. Tonight, the Knicks wrap up their regular season. And 
it look record wise based on what the expectations were compared to last season obviously it's a season that Knicks fans and the Knicks themselves had hoped would turn out differently they're not going to the playoffs they didn't even qualify for the play-in tournament uh, at best they're going to finish eight games below 500 and the stretch from really Martin Luther King Jr. Day when they hosted the Charlotte Hornets at Madison Square Garden through the All-Star break. And if you remember the final game between the All-Star break or before the All-Star break, that was the game at the Garden against a Nets team that was playing without anyone. Um, obviously without Ben Simmons, uh, James Harden was already gone. Kyrie Irving at that point was not allowed to play at the Garden. And Kevin Durant was injured and not playing that night. Uh, the Mets lose final score four to two. So three runs in the bottom of the eighth inning for the Nats helped them salvage the final game of that four game season opening homestand. So the Mets are three and one uh, excellent pitching performance for Carlos Carrasco, but it goes for naught as they lose four to two. Now that month from Martin Luther King day until the final game before the all-star break, when Cam Thomas went crazy in the fourth quarter and the Knicks blew a 21-point lead to the Brooklyn Nets without any of the top three players for Brooklyn playing. That was the stretch of time that did the Knicks in this season. Knicks, at that point, go on the All-Star break, come back a week later. They started off with a very, very difficult schedule. Their first game was at the Garden against the Miami Heat on a Friday night. R.J. Barrett, that was the night he scored 46 points. Knicks had a chance to win that game. They couldn't close it out. At the time, the Heat were ascending the Eastern Conference standings, ultimately landing where they did with the top seed in the Eastern Conference playoffs. And then the next two games, the Knicks just caught the 76ers at the wrong time because those were two of the first three games for Harden after the trade from Brooklyn. And that was Harden at his best. And you know, no, nobody does a honeymoon like James Harden, you know? Remember when he came to Brooklyn last year? I believe he had a triple-double in his first game. You know, the first month, month and a half of the season, Durant was in and out of the lineup. Irving was in and out of the lineup. And James Harden was carrying the team. And there was even some MVP buzz for a guy who literally sabotaged his previous team so that he could force a trade out of town. The honeymoon period for James Harden is rather nice and it seems to last a shorter and shorter amount of time with each passing team unfortunately for the Knicks like James Harden's honeymoon period in Philadelphia this year literally lasted like a week unfortunately for the Knicks they had to play the 76ers two times in that week the first game at the Garden and Harden had a triple double and then two days later in Philadelphia and the Knicks had a chance to win both of those games so Coming out of the break, the Knicks are 0-3 with losses to Miami, Philadelphia, and Philadelphia. And then they start their seven-game road trip that took them all over the country. Well, actually, the second game in Philadelphia was the start of the seven-game road trip. But then the Knicks go to Phoenix. Now, it was a Phoenix team that was playing without Chris Paul, who had the broken thumb, and Devin Booker, who was in the health and safety protocols. But Phoenix has proven down the stretch of this season that even without one or, in some cases, two of their All-Stars, they're the best team in the NBA this year. I mean, they have everything working. And the Knicks had that game in their grasp. Even after Julius Randle got a couple of technical fouls and got ejected for his altercation with Cam Johnson. But that was the game where the Knicks had the game won. 
And the ball bounced out to Cam Johnson in the closing seconds. And the Knicks were up by two. And Johnson banked in a three-pointer at the buzzer. And the Knicks had suffered their seventh straight loss. And they fell to a season-worst 13 games below 500. They were 25-38. and 38. And then they had five more games on their road trip ahead of them. So you figured that this team at that point was going to pack it in. If there was ever a time to pack it in, you know, Randall was frustrated. He had just been ejected from the game in Phoenix. Barrett was just coming back from injury. Nerlens Noel was already gone. Kemba Walker had already been sent home from the team. Derek Rose was gone since December. You thought you were getting him back after the All-Star break, and then he had just suffered the setback. So, really, that was the low point of the season. And the way that the Knicks responded after that March 4th loss in Phoenix, the next game, they went to L.A. and they beat the Clippers by 23 points. And then they were down by 20 to Sacramento and came back to beat them by 16 points. And then they beat Dallas by 30 points. And big wins, big wins just in terms of score, a 30-point win over Portland, uh, a win over Washington, uh, a win over Charlotte in a game in which they didn't have Julius Randle, a come-from-behind win over Miami in which the Knicks dominated the Heat in the fourth quarter. A win over the Chicago Bulls at Madison Square Garden in a game that the Bulls really needed for playoff positioning. And then close, close losses against teams that needed these games. They played well a couple of times against Utah and lost to them. They played well against Atlanta, which was trying to get into the play-in tournament. They lost to them at the Garden. The other night, they were right there with Brooklyn with four minutes to go in that game before Brooklyn pulled away late. So the way that the Knicks closed this season was impressive. It shows you that they're playing for this head coach. And I think that's important because the way that that period of time from Martin Luther King to the All-Star break went for the Knicks, the wheels were very, very close to coming off the bus for this franchise. I mean, they were 22-21 and 21 when they took the floor on MLK Day against Charlotte. And by the time that they had blown that lead against the Nets on February 16th, they had fallen to 25 and 34. So that means during that roughly month-long period of time, actually it was exactly a month-long period of time, they were 3 and 13. And that was it. You can point to two things as far as why the Knicks are not going to be part of the play-in tournament. That stretch is one. They were 3 and 13. And then you go back early in the season, the first couple of months, and this is why people say you play 82 games and the games in November count just the same as the games in March and April because you can count five or six games that the Knicks had no business losing and this was back when the Knicks were fully healthy and seemingly fully engaged and and clicking on all cylinders you know game three of the season the Knicks host Orlando after they had just beaten them by 25 points they play them the very next game at the Garden and they lose this is a rebuilding Orlando team okay um they played a game November 1st against Toronto that was playing without three or four starters. They lose that game at Madison Square Garden by nine points. November 17th, they go and play Orlando again at the Garden, and they have a rough fourth quarter and lose that game. Um, and then you get into the point of the season with all of the games in which they led by 20-plus points and lost those games. And a lot of those were on that road trip that I just mentioned um, in February in that 3-13 and 13 stretch. 
Los Angeles, that Saturday night nationally televised game. You have a 20-plus point lead over the Lakers. They come back, and you lose that game. Utah, you had a double-digit second-half lead the very next game. You lose that game. Portland on February 12th. That one may have been the worst because that was a Portland team that was already without Lillard. They had already traded C.J. McCollum. They were kind of in tank mode already, and you have a 28-point lead against the Trailblazers, and you lose that game 112-103. to And then the Brooklyn game on February 16th, right before the All-Star break that I have spoken about a couple of times. Even the Brooklyn game the other night, as well as the Knicks played, that goes down as a game in which they led by 20-plus points and lost. So you can point to any number of those games. That's about eight or nine games I just mentioned. If half of them go in the Knicks' favor, then we're talking about today's game being important for at least positioning in the play-in tournament. We all knew, anybody who pays attention knew that it was going to be difficult for the Knicks to repeat the success of last year. And the biggest reason for that is because the Eastern Conference got so much better. And it played out exactly that way, even more so than I even thought. I mean, look at the teams that are improved from last year. Miami, they made all the moves in the offseason. Kyle Lowry, um, you know, Jimmy Butler, obviously healthy for most of the year. Um, you know, Milwaukee, the defending champs. Boston took a step back last year. I don't think anybody expected them to be a 50-win team this season. Philadelphia. We didn't know what to make of the Ben Simmons situation. Well, they weathered that storm. They're a 50-win team. Toronto had to play 72 road games last season. They fell out of the playoff picture. They're back as the number five seed. The Bulls have been out of the playoffs for about five years now. They bring in Lonzo Ball. They bring in Alex Caruso. They bring in DeMar DeRozan. They have a full season of Nikola Vucevic. Um, you know, the Nets were the favorites before the season. Who knew how good Cleveland was going to be? They just drafted Evan Mobley. He, for most of the year, was the rookie of the year favorite. Jared Allen turned himself into an all-star, and so did Darius Garland. You knew the Atlanta Hawks were going to be tough. You thought that Charlotte could take a step forward. So the East was incredibly deep. And I remember sitting here saying before the start of the season, the Knicks could actually be quote-unquote better and take a step back in the Eastern Conference because of how good everyone else around them got. Now that happened. That's exactly what happened. But that's not the only thing that happened. The Knicks didn't play as well as they did last year. The defense wasn't good early. Kemba Walker was a big reason for that. Kemba Walker's a guy who has relied on speed his entire career. His size has always been a liability, but his speed has been able to make up for that somewhat. Unfortunately, Kemba's at a point in his career where he doesn't have that speed anymore. So he's compromised in terms of size and in terms of speed, and he became a big deficiency on the defensive end for the Knicks, especially uh, replacing a guy like Alfred Payton, who as much as Knicks fans hated last year, gave them a lot more than that on the defensive end, and Reggie Bullock. And, you know, Reggie Bullock defensively, what you gave up and replaced with Evan Fournier. I mean, Evan Fournier has set the single-season record for three-pointers. Uh, there's been nights where he's been on fire, and then there's other nights where he can't get off the bench in the fourth quarter because he can't really guard anybody in the fourth quarter of those games. And Bullock was not only out there, but he was guarding the other team's best player. So, look, um, there's a lot of reasons why the Knicks did not perform as well as they did a season ago. 
But there's also some bright spots that came out of the season and some bright spots that came out in recent weeks. Ben Simmons could play if the Nets advance past the play-in tournament. That would change things in my mind. Because here's the thing. Ben Simmons, the whole thing was just mismanaged by everybody involved. Starting with Ben Simmons and his team, the 76ers, Doc Rivers, Joel Embiid. I, I think that's one of those situations where if everybody just went back to that fateful night in Atlanta, Game 7, second round of the playoffs last year, uh, when Simmons was really putrid offensively the entire series, and then the moment that everybody remembers is him literally passing up on a wide-open dunk attempt in the closing minutes um, in a tie ball game because he was afraid of getting fouled and passing the ball off instead. And then afterwards, Stock Rivers answering a question a little too honestly. Um, honestly, do you think that you can win a championship with Ben Simmons as your point guard and Doc Rivers. I, he, and to be honest, in his mind, he probably thought he was being diplomatic. And he said, I don't know. And everything went haywire from there. And look, that is the truth, by the way. I mean, Doc Rivers is great with the media. Um, when NBA teams come to town, and unfortunately this is before COVID, but now we're face-to-face -face again this year. But when NBA teams, you know, come into a town, the visiting team, uh, each head coach has to meet with the media for 15 minutes before the game. Doc Rivers, whether he was with the Clippers or the last couple of years with the 76ers, he's my favorite coach to listen to because he does tell you he's very engaging. He's got a great personality. Uh, he tells you what he feels. And sometimes he actually is a little too honest. But you know what? He's among the winningest coaches of all time. He's won an NBA championship. He this year was voted uh, as one of the top 15 coaches of all time as part of the NBA's 75th anniversary celebration. So he's got the confidence of somebody with that resume who can be a little more honest. But I think if he could take back that situation in Philadelphia last year um, when they lost to the Hawks in game seven of that second round playoff series, I think he would probably answer that question a little differently because everything went off the rails. The biggest culprit in the whole thing was Simmons, though. I mean, you sucked. Can I say that? You stunk. You were terrible in the playoff series. You were terrible. You were 34% from the foul line in the playoff series. You were afraid to take the ball to the basket because you were 34% from the foul line in the playoff series. And afterwards, when they ask your coach if you can win a championship with you, yes, would he have rather not said that? Yeah, like I said, I think he would, but... He said, I don't know. He didn't say, no, we can't win a championship with this guy. No, we have to trade this guy. I mean, that's what it's come to for this guy. He, he, he was that sensitive that he needed to get out of Philadelphia. I mean, Simmons obviously was the most culpable in that entire situation. All of that being said, all right, what is Ben Simmons? He's a guy in his mid-20s. He's a guy who's one of the best perimeter defensive players in the NBA. He's a guy who's 6'9" can run an offense, can lead a fast break, terrific passer, and almost, if you were going to draw up in a lab uh, a player to play alongside Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, it's probably Ben Simmons, somebody who doesn't need the ball. I mean, he doesn't even want the ball. Durant has the ball in his hand so much. Kyrie Irving has the ball in his hand so much. Um, that's what was so impressive about the... 
trio with James Harden because he has the ball in his hands so much as well. And the fact that the few times they played together, they were able to make it work was really impressive. But Simmons doesn't need the ball. Simmons is not only happy to do everything else, he excels at it. Defense, ball movement, um, leading the fast break, running the offense. That's his game. So he fits in perfectly. All right. If the Nets are saying that he could potentially be able to play, I've got to think he's ready to play physically. I mean, he's had this, according to the injury report, this back injury after his, you know, the first few weeks when he was with the Nets, the official reason he was out was return to conditioning, which is fairly common for someone, whether in these days they come off a COVID-related absence or an injury or something like that. And then all of a sudden, the return to conditioning excuse or um, excuse is the wrong word uh, return to conditioning reason for his missing a game turned to um, a back issue and that's what has been ailing him since then according to the official injury reports but I don't think that Brooklyn throws him out there if he's not okay physically and mentally and if he's okay physically and mentally he doesn't need to lead this team Kevin Durant leads this team Kyrie Irving leads this team Ben Simmons does not need to lead this team. There are certain athletes in all sports. There are certain athletes that have the talent, but they're not alpha dog number one guys. You know, Simmons used to play with a guy who is, and that's Joel Embiid. And he looks like he's going to win the scoring title this season. He's one of the top three candidates for the NBA's MVP award. Okay, but he's the alpha dog. He's the number one guy. Simmons was never that doesn't mean you can't be a highly, highly effective player. So if Simmons can play for the Nets, assuming they get past the play-in tournament, which, you know, let's assume they do if they go in as the number seven seed, that to me changes the equation of what the Nets are capable of doing in this postseason. Now we'll see if that develops, but that was a really, really interesting report by Woj. 1-800-919-3776. couple of calls. Let's get back to the phones. Let's go to Doug on Long Island. Doug, what's going on? Hey, Pat, uh, first time calling. I've called a, a bunch of times here. I'm just going to bounce around the NBA a little bit. I don't know. You know what really frightened me about the Nets a uh, couple weeks ago, a week and a half ago? Remember that game when KD and Kyrie scored 86 points and they lost to the Hawks? I yes. was like, how in the hell does that happen? And then I'm just going to echo some stuff about Julius Randle. Know him really well. My brother used to run your franchise for a little while. And I always told him that when I spoke to Julius, I said, man, you have not learned yet. You've been always the greatest player in AAU, biggest, strongest, fastest. You fell off in the league. It's going to take you a minute to come back. He did. He, he had to learn how to handle the ball and distribute. And the middle year was great. But I told him, I said, man, these people here, they wanted you out of town when Steve brought you here, just like he wanted Portis and Morris out of town, too. I said, um, but they're going to love you if you're able to recapture something and then understand the next year, if it's not even better, they will be ready to run you out of town. There are free agents that I know personally, some of them that are Hall of Famers, who said to me during that whole free agent thing, hey, man, Doug, I love your brother. I love everything he said. I'll never come and play for the Knicks. Never. They're not because of the organization or anything. I'm telling you, the fans are thankless. And then my last thing is, isn't Cleveland putting together a nice little team, building it from within? Didn't they really put together something nice? They're really a good team. You're talking about the Cavs? Yeah, I mean, they're really putting together something nice. A couple of mix of veterans, 
young players and guys are hurt. Maybe they get Rubio and the guys back next year. They're really good. I'm impressed with them. You know, and thanks for the call, Doug. Your connection's a little weak, so we'll let you go. But you make a good point. Cleveland was in the top four of the Eastern Conference midway through the season. There was a brief stretch there where there were a game or two games out of the top spot in the East. Unfortunately for Cleveland, they just had too many injuries that they couldn't overcome. But they did this the hard way. You know, they, Cleveland's not a free agent destination unless there's a kid who is from Akron who wants to come back home and lead that franchise to its first ever championship. Other than that, Cleveland's not getting high-powered free agents. So, well, how do they build this team? Well, they got Jared Allen by jumping in on the James Harden trade. And for some reason, the Nets gave up Allen. That's, that wasn't the confusing part because the Nets were willing to give up whatever they could to get Harden. For some reason, Houston didn't want Jared Allen. They would prefer a draft pick. So they instead got a draft pick from Cleveland. Cleveland jumped in and got Jared Allen. They found a great role for him. He turned into an all-star player. They drafted Evan Mobley with the third pick in the draft last year out of Southern Cal. And Mobley, he still might be the rookie of the year. Cade Cunningham has made a very strong push towards the end of the season. I still think it should go to Mobley because Mobley is kind of the prototypical 2022 center. He can score. He can shoot. He can protect the rim. He can rebound. He's athletic. He does a lot of things really, really well. He helped turn around that franchise. And then Darius Garland, the former number five overall pick. This is in 2019, the year that Barrett went to the Knicks at number three. Garland got a little bit better each and every year. And towards the end of his second season last year, you started to see some signs of improvement. And Garland turned himself into an all-star. You had Kevin Love, who... I mean, Kevin Love, the last couple of seasons, had some really, really rough moments on the court in which he openly quit on his teammates on the court multiple times. But Kevin Love is under this huge... And and this is what you like to see from the team and the player. Kevin Love is under this huge albatross of a contract. He wanted to be anywhere but Cleveland the last couple of years. And there were several times where he handled himself extremely poorly on the floor. But the fact of the matter is they had to pay him $30 million this year. So they found a spot for him. They told him, hey, look, we got Jared Allen. We got Evan Mobley. You're going to come off the bench. And Love found his role as the sixth man and a veteran leader and a veteran presence off the bench. He's not the guy that used to average 28 points and 13 rebounds anymore before he came to Cleveland. But in this new role, he has really thrived. And... They play defense. Um, you know, they added Karis LeVert, who can give them a little offensive scoring as well. So they did this. The way they built this was incredibly impressive. But unfortunately for them, it, it, too many injuries. You know, Colin Sexton went down early. Ricky Rubio went down for the season. He was their veteran presence in the backcourt. Mobley missed time. Jared Allen is still out. Karis LeVert has been in and out of the lineup. And unfortunately, it was too many injuries to overcome. So they're going to end up in the play-in tournament. Uh, likely as the number eight seed, although things are getting interesting in Brooklyn right now. Uh, Indiana got back to within one. Right now, the Nets lead the Pacers 85-79 to 79 with seven minutes to go in the third quarter. Uh, update from the U.S. Open, U.S. Open, from the Masters, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, I heard Tiger Woods saying that uh, he would consider playing in the, uh, or he was playing in the Open Championship during the update. Update from the Masters, Scotty Scheffler gave a stroke back. He is now 
10 under par, and his lead over Cameron Smith is now at four. Smith also gave a stroke back. So Rory McIlroy, who's minus seven today and is storming up the leaderboard, is now in a tie for second place. He and Smith are both tied for second, four shots off the lead. So that's where we stand right now. Final day of the NBA season. Brooklyn trying to lock up the seventh spot in the Eastern Conference and the uh, home court advantage in Tuesday night's play-in tournament. And the Knicks finish their regular season. Uh, they get it going less than two hours from now at Madison Square Garden when they host the Raptors. We'll have pregame coverage for you right here on 98.7 ESPN New York starting at 630. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Lou in New Jersey. Lou, how you doing? Hi, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. I've uh, been a Knicks fan since 1963, seen the good, the bad, the ugly, and the great. And I got to tell you, I like some of the things you had to say. The uh, the the people who are bashing Randall and Tibbs are so far off base. This whole problem this season lays in the on the hands of the front office. Uh, Rose and West have been horrible. The Knicks should have learned from the Mets about hiring agents to be GMs. They they got they got a guy that they knew could only play every other game. He was going to be our point guard. Then they get a guy who's a sporadic three-point shooter and plays no defense, and I wouldn't want the, him, the ball in his hands in any clutch situation at the end of a game because he's a turnover machine. I think Randall and Tibbs have been given such a bad shake on this and for, for Wes to go to Dolan and bash Tibbs, whose idea was it to get Kemba? Really, I think it was Wes because he's covering his own ass. These guys are good. Tibbs is one of the best coaches, and Randall should not be getting bashed the way he is. His numbers are still good from last year, but the, he's getting all, all, of the, uh, all of the abuse because he's out there and visible, and Tibbs too, whereas you can't find Wes and you certainly can't find Rose. So that's my point. These guys deserve, they deserve credit, not blame. The problem is the front office. Lou, thanks for the call. I, I, I hear your point. Um, I mean, Randall's definitely gotten, you know, Tibbs had his moments in the middle of the season, you know, and there's still the people out there on Twitter, whether they're, you know, members of the fringe media or passionate fans or whatever it may be, who are highly critical of Tom Thibodeau playing, for example, Alec Burks, um, you know, instead of Emmanuel Quickly or Deuce McBride. Here's the thing. What are the Knicks if they only play the kids? You know, Alec Burks is a professional rotation-level NBA basketball player. You sign this guy to a multi-year contract worth $10 million a year. You can't just take guys like that, guys like Julius Randle. And say what you want about Julius Randle. R.J. Barrett has been the biggest positive to come out of this season. We'll talk about him on the Knicks pregame show at 6.30. We'll talk about him now if you want. R.J. Barrett has been the biggest positive. Other positives this season, there are some, and they all involve the young kids. Quickly's last 23 games, he's averaged more than 14 points and 4.5 and assists a game while shooting nearly 40% from downtown. Obi Toppin, as a starter, is averaging more than 17 points a game and shooting higher than 40% from downtown. Jericho Sims, they picked him 58th overall. He's a rookie out of Texas, a four-year college player, which, you know, is kind of taboo in today's NBA, and he looks like he can be a really solid backup center. To get him at that spot in the draft and be a part of the rotation, that's a win. So those are the positives coming out of the season, and the biggest positive 
is what R.J. Barrett has become. And he's not playing today, but Barrett will finish his third season as a 20-point-per-game scorer. And look, the last month of the season, if you look at Barrett's individual game stat lines, there's a high volume of shots being attempted. But that's not how he got there the entire season. That really only started when Julius Randle left the lineup and Barrett became the focal point of the Knicks offense. Before that, he was putting up a much more efficient 20 to 25 points a game. From December 31st until his final game the other night when he injured his knee in Washington, Barrow was averaging about 24 points per game. That's a really, really large sample size. This is a 21-year-old kid who is in his third NBA season. Think about this. Barrett should have been playing for Duke, for Mike Krzyzewski, in his final season this year. Barrett should still be in college. Instead, he's in his third year, and he just averaged 20 points per game. All of that being said, Julius Randle is the best player on the Knicks. He still is. And I know Knicks fans don't like to hear that. But he's their leading scorer, he's their leading rebounder, and he's their leading assist man. Everything the Knicks do goes through Julius Randle, and that's the good and that's the bad. Does he turn the ball over too much? Yes, but he grabs 10 rebounds a night. There was a game a couple of weeks ago. It was one of the last games he played this season where I think he scored three points the entire game. He hit one field goal. He looked like he was not 100% healthy. He was limping around the court, and he grabbed 13 rebounds that game. He grabbed 13 rebounds that game. Obi Toppin, we're talking about Obi Toppin. I'm, I'm not taking anything away from Obi. His finish to the season has been something that Knicks fans are going to be and should be excited about going into the offseason. Everybody's talking about Obi's 35-point performance the other night as the Knicks starting power forward. You know, how many point, you know how many rebounds Obi grabbed the other night in 38 minutes? He grabbed four rebounds. He's got to grab more rebounds. You need more than four rebounds from your starting power forward, especially when the guy who does it each and every, each and every day is a 10-rebound-a-game guy. Was Julius Randle perfect this season? No. Did he take a step back this year compared to last year? Yes. His scoring numbers decreased. His rebounding numbers decreased. His assist numbers decreased. His shooting numbers decreased. Last year, he was a second-team All-NBA player. But what is Julius Randle? Julius Randle is a 20-10 and 10 guy in the NBA. Those guys don't grow on trees, all right? Everybody's all excited about Obi Toppin, and I, I mentioned his numbers. He started nine games. He's averaging 17-7. and 17-7 and seven in his nine starts, all right? Julius Randle averages 20-10 and 10 over 72 starts. You can't just... It, it sounds great saying, play the kids, play the kids. Let's see Deuce McBride and Emmanuel Quickly and Jericho Sims, and Obi Toppin, and R.J. Barrett, and get rid of Fournier, and get rid of Burks, and get rid of Randall, and get rid of Taj Gibson. You can't just play the kids. If you just play the kids, you're going to be the Detroit Pistons. You're going to be the Orlando Magic. You're going to be the Houston Rockets. And listen to me. The Knicks just had a six-year stretch where they were those teams. All right? They win the division in 2013. They win 54 games, go to the second round of the playoffs. The next year, they missed the playoffs by one game, Mike Woodson's final season. After that, they had two years and a five-year stretch in which they won 17 games. The other years, they won 29 games, 30 games, 31 games. They didn't sniff the playoffs. We're talking about a seven-year stretch of not sniffing the playoffs until they went to the playoffs last year with a record of 41 and 31. You can't just throw your hands up and say, play the kids, play the kids. 
it doesn't work that way because then you're going to be a 17-win team. You can't be a 17-win team anymore. You've already done it twice in the last decade. The Knicks today are a lot, lot, lot closer to contention than they were when the season ended two years ago. Is this season disappointing? Yes, it is. After 41-31, and 31, after home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs, everybody wanted and was excited for more. It didn't happen this year. But what they are right now is 36-45. and 45. 36 wins is about five more wins than in any single season since Mike Woodson left as the head coach in 2014. They're a lot, they're, they're, their salary cap situation is in better shape. They have young building blocks that could be at least rotation players. Quickly and Toppin, R.J. Barrett, Jericho Sims, okay? And then they have pieces that, look, next year, their contracts are going to be one year closer to the end. So are Evan Fournier and Alec Burks trade chips? Yes, they are. The Knicks are in a lot better shape right now than they were two years ago. Than one year ago? Unfortunately not. But let's try to take a longer view of this picture of this franchise. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN.